Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to today's Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. My guest today is one of the most powerful, and some would say controversial, politicians in the country, as London Mayor Sadiq Khan has ultimate control over transport, policing, economic development and fire and emergency planning in a city of nine million people. He's been at the centre of fights over funding Transport for London and who runs the Metropolitan Police. He's also become a hate figure to the far right around the world, a Muslim mayor who's attracted personal insults from Donald Trump, who seems obsessed about his height. If you're unfortunate enough to hear the voices in the extreme right fever swamps, then the mayor is trying to install Sharia law in a city that's now too dangerous to visit because of all the knife crime. In reality, his main goal is a bit more modest and a bit more realistic. In his new book, Breathe, Tackling the Climate Emergency, Sadiq Khan describes how a very personal experience converted him to making cleaning up London's air central to his mayoralty campaign. After taking up running for fitness reasons, he was diagnosed at the age of 43 with adult-onset asthma from breathing in the polluted air of the very city he still says is the greatest in the world. What has he learned from trying to fix the pollution in the big smoke? And what is life like when you're maybe the most famous Muslim? in the country. Sadiq Khan, hello, welcome to The Bunker. Andrew, it's great to be with you. And for those that are listening, we are actually in a bunker. It's, it's a studio in Spiritland, which is a great place in King's Cross, but it's a joy to uh, join you and to chat with a fellow Red fan. Oh, yes. Well, we'll be discussing Liverpool FC, the real issue on the table, a little bit later. But let's let's talk about the book. Actually, we have another thing in common, fellow asthma sufferer here. So, oh, right, okay. you know, okay. inhale a fist bump there. How did you discover that you got it? Well, here's the thing, and I talk about this in the book, is, you know, I like to think I'm reasonably well-read, reasonably well-informed. Arrogance aside, you know, I was cabinet minister, MP for many years, member of the shadow cabinet, been a Londoner all my life. And in 2014, I ran the London Marathon to, to raise money for charity, got a full medical before I started training for the marathon, clean bill of health, trained for eight to 10 weeks to run the marathon, ran the marathon, you know, finished it, got a good time, raised money. Then a few months later, I started noticing, well, others started noticing, you know, that, you know, I was coughing a lot. I was clearing my throat. But also I noticed when I, when I was playing football, I'd be out of breath sprinting for mm. a short 10, 12 meter sprint. When I go for a jog, I wasn't my usual fit self. And, I, and I, I thought it was just fitness. I thought maybe it's just a lack of fitness. And you know what it's like, you know, you're busy and you have other priorities and you you don't go to the GP. And in the end, my wife persuaded me either to go to the GP. And I was literally knocked for six when the GP said, listen, you've, you've got asthma. Because when I was growing up at school, probably two people in the entire school, my school had about a thousand kids, about two people had asthma with those blue pumps. Yeah. And they, they couldn't really play sports. They didn't get involved in the playground and stuff. And so I, that was my view of asthma. And I, I couldn't understand how I'd got it, bearing in mind, reasonably fit, so forth. And that began this journey, which I talk about in the book Breathe, which is actually... If 
I'm not aware, for example, that the causes of climate change are also the causes of air pollution. If I'm not aware, there is this invisible thing in the air called particulate matter, mm -hmm. nitrogen dioxide, nitrogen oxide. Query how many other people are unaware. But also, the causes of climate change are the same causes of air pollution. And here's the really scary thing. Each year in this city, around 4,000 people die prematurely because of air pollution across the country, about nine to 10,000 across the globe, around 9 million people. And if you and I were speaking 10 years ago mm. about climate change, we'd be saying climate change is an issue that affects the global South, Sub-Saharan Africa, Bangladesh. 20, 30 years time, we'll come back to it. But actually, if you lived through the heat wave last year in this country, 41 degrees Celsius, if you lived through the flash floods taking place across our country the last two summers, wildfires, this is an us issue and a now issue. And one of the themes of the book is it's kind of hard to keep climate change and air quality issues at the front of of day-to-day -day political campaigning when your opponents and sometimes even some people in your own strategy teams will be want to be will want to concentrate on you know the bread and butter issues like health and housing, which the mayor doesn't control. But that's what's seen to shift the political dial. Do you think you've been able to succeed in moving the dial in the other direction to bringing? climate change on air issues central to the debate? Well, other issues, of course, are important. Mm. So what, what this uh, this book about, it's not a political memoir, but it's a personal book and my story, and it's a handbook, whether you're a politician, whether you're an activist, whether you're an ordinary citizen, whether you're a campaigner, about, in an honest way, I hope, about some of the challenges and obstacles I face. You've mentioned one, deprioritization, mm. uh, how we dealt with them. And so there could be, you know, fatalism. There's, there's nothing we can do about this. Why we've wasted our time to apathy, doesn't affect me. Cynicism. All politicians are the same. Priorities, you mentioned. Hostility is another one. You mentioned the sort of the, the fringe who latch on to this to mm. oppose this, the cost and, of course, uh, gridlock. And I think I think we have, look, 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 look at London. In, in two years, we managed to reduce the toxicity in the centre of our city by almost 50%. When I was running for mayor, I was told it would take 193 years according to King's College, independent experts for the air in London to be lawful, will now do it by 2025. And so it's also a book of hope. You can mm. change things. And you don't need to be the most radical green activist to bring about change. Yeah. One of the most emotive stories in the book is actually the first story in the book. It's the, the terrible story of Ella Roberta Adukissi Debra. The young girl who died of an asthma attack age nine. And she's the first person in the world to have air pollution listed as their cause of death. And I did, reading that story, I remember seeing it at the time and just being so horrified by it, but also thinking, if this doesn't move the dial, what's going to? Well, let me tell you another story. Ella's story is heartbreaking, and I'm really proud to call her mum, Rosamond, a friend now who's a campaigner, is if you and I were speaking in the mid-noughties, there'd probably be a cigarette smoke in this room, actually, mm. we're in, in, in this studio we're in, because smoking was allowed in public places. But a chap called Roy Castle mm -hmm. was the first example we could think of of somebody who'd never smoked a fag in his life, mm. played a trumpet in working men's clubs for most of his other life. He's also did, by the way, also a presenter of a Guinness Book of Records. And he was diagnosed with secondhand cancer. Yeah. The reason I mentioned Roy Council is I was a member of parliament in 2006 and I voted to ban smoking in public places because Roy humanized the consequences of secondhand smoking and lung cancer. And I think similarly, Ella is somebody who humanizes the dangers of air pollution because Ella's not the only person to have died prematurely from air pollution. But the reason why Ella is special, a number of reasons why Ella is special, is because of her mum's campaigning, she managed to persuade the courts to have a second inquest. And the coroner at the inquest concluded that her asthma, her death, 
was directly linked to air pollution. And so just like when we when when we know about people who suffer from lung cancer, the links with smoking. Yeah. We know those that die from sometimes cardiovascular issues linked to obesity. Now there is no argument at all. 99% of the world's experts agree air pollution leads to a whole host of health issues from children with stunted lungs, asthma, cancer, dementia, and heart disease. One of the real surprises in the book is you describe how your predecessor, Boris Johnson, commissioned a review from the consultancy Ether into the quality of London's air and then simply didn't bother publishing it. It's, it's, it's worse than not collecting the data. They were collecting it and then doing nothing with it. Were you shocked, to, as I was, when I was reading this? I was. And, and Boris Johnson, and there are others like him, are, are similar to those people 30, 40 years ago who knew tobacco was bad and buried it away or lied to us. Because, you know, we've got to recognise what the science tells us. Uh, and it can be inconvenient to tackle these issues, but the choice is to tackle these issues or to bury your head in the sand, which is what Johnson chose to do. But by not publishing the report, he basically you know, put his head in the sand and buried this report. And here's the point about this great city, but also our country. There are politicians from previous generations who have been bold, including from Boris Johnson's party. So mm. you and I are sitting in King's Cross now to record this podcast. But if we were sitting here in the 1850s, there'd be a horrible stink, the great stink, because sewers were open. They let thousands of people dying from cholera. But brave politicians took action and built sewers, Basil Jet's sewers in London. Similarly, if we, you and I were talking here in the 1950s, uh, you'd have said, Sadiq, I got to you by going through this smog, the great smog. The pea right? supers, yeah. Right? And so what happened was brave politicians during the 50s passed the Clean Air Act and removed power stations from the centre of our city, Battersea Power Station, what is now the Tate. Unpopular, but it saved thousands of lives. The problem is you can't see mm. this killer we've got now, the particular matter of the nitrogen dioxide. But Johnson had the evidence showing more than 400 schools more than 400 schools were in areas where the air was unlawful. So the kids walking to school, cycling to school, scooting to schools were breathing in poison. The kids playing in the playground every day were breathing in poison. Poorest parts of London, the, the children's parents probably didn't own a car. So they suffered the worst consequences from air pollution, least responsible. And what did you do? Not let people know about it, educate Londoners, get permission to take action, bring it away. Yeah, it was, I mean, one of the side uh, benefits of the book is you really do see what a do-nothing mayoralty it was. Lots of cable cars, not much else. But I want to ask you about the, the measures you've taken yourself because both the ultra-low emission zone and low-traffic neighbourhoods have come up against massive opposition, particularly in outer boroughs. Personally, I'm a huge fan. I live right, I walk through an LTN every day on my way to work. It's lovely. The most, the most hazardous thing is you might get knocked over by a bike. But outside of, the, of central London, the opposition has been quite vocal. Are you surprised at the vociferousness of the opposition when, you know, extending this, it's a £12.50 charge into areas inside the M25 is, is your plan? So, so there's a chapter in the book which is called Hostility, which, which deals with these sorts of uh, issues. There was, there's a, there was a president of America called Richard Nixon who talks, who used this phrase, he used it in a negative context, but the silent majority. And I think the silent majority are people like, people like you. But let me tell you an amazing stat, which is when I first announced this policy in 2017, only 39% of vehicles in London were compliant. In other words, cleaner mm. vehicles, 39%. That's now north of 94% for central and inner London. And for outer London, nine out of 10 vehicles already are compliant because of our policies. But half of Londoners don't even own a car. The poorest Londoners who suffer the worst health consequences don't own a car. And so it's an issue of social justice. But to help those who do own a car, low-income families, sole traders, small businesses, charities, we've set aside a 
scrappage scheme of 110 million pounds to support them make the transition. But latching onto these people with genuine concerns are conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, and others who conflate a number of issues yeah. and make a lot of noise. And I call them the vocal minority. And people like you and your family and your friends and your neighbours may not realise that actually this this loud noise is coming from a small number of people, yeah. often funded by vested interests, fossil fuel companies and so forth. And it's always been the case. You know, when we, we talked about banning smoking in public places, the tobacco companies opposed that. In the 1950s, the power stations opposed the Clean Air Act and many others. And, you know, people who have been inconvenienced by the sewers opposed that. So it's not the first time we've had a, you know, vested interest funding a vocal minority. I'd love to see who was opposing sewers. <laughs> Just, uh, I'm trying to well, imagine the, the, this. The people have been moved on, right? The, yeah. people, the, the, the slum landlords, the people benefiting hmm. from the chaos in the centre of our cities. Yeah. it's. I mean, the ULAs and the LTN thing, for my sins, I spend a lot of time looking at your Facebook page. And the comments can be pretty kind of vicious sometimes. And the frequent accusation is that... ULES in particular is a money-making scheme. I looked at, I read around this, the charges make up about 6% of TFL income at the moment, I think. And they all have to be spent on transport, don't they? It's not yeah. going to stack so squirreled away. It's, it's a really important point that, that you raised because this is some of the misinformation mm. that the vested interest, vested interest groups throw around. So listen, if, if it was going to be a money-making device, you'd want to have in perpetuity more non-compliant vehicles paying the fee because it applies in the polluter pays principal fee. In fact, what this policy does is encourage fewer non-compliant vehicles and either more compliant vehicles, in other words, pay zero, or people walk in and cycling. So in two years' time, the prediction is we get zero money from the ultra-low emission zone because people are either compliant or using walking, cycling, public transport. But also, every penny of income we raise from the ULES is invested back in public transport, the vast majority improving public transport in outer London. So we've now got a new scheme, a new bus route called the Superloop, which, mm. which is an orbital route in London, partially funding by, uh, you know, uh, any monies from elsewhere in the TfL budget. But I'm the mayor, by the way. You mentioned the legacy I inherited from the previous guy. Transport for London in its entire history has always been in deficit. The previous mayor took out massive debts, big deficits, increased fares by more than 42%. I'm the mayor that's frozen fares for five years, has reduced the deficit and doesn't need income from ULES to make the TfL books balance. This scheme mm. is to improve the quality of air in our city, not to raise money for TfL. Yeah, but that said, I mean, what do you say to somebody who says, you know, I live on an arterial road because uh, I'm not massively well off. You're diverting traffic away from sort of leafy, owner-occupied, more middle-class areas onto the arterial roads where I live and my kids live. There is an argument, and I don't agree with it myself. I'm, a, like I say, a huge fan of LTNs, but a very conspicuous argument is that LTNs move traffic into working-class areas. So, so, so in London... 5% of roads in London, 5% are controlled by me. The other 95% are controlled by our 32 local authorities and the City of London Corporation. Now, if a local authority wants to do an LTN, low traffic neighbourhood, what a local authority will do is engage with residents and before a scheme, and maybe we'll have a temporary scheme, an LTN, and before a scheme becomes permanent, we'll have to consult residents before that LTN becomes permanent. And I've said to councils who are bringing in LTNs, it's really important you consult your residents before they become permanent. And so what councils are now doing is making sure they consult residents, including neighbouring councils, residents uh, as well. But you're right, we've got to keep an eye on displacement and uh, good councils are doing so. So there are examples of great schemes in 
Waltham Forest, in Newham and Lambeth, where the councils have looked into the issue of car usage, have looked into the issue of displacement, looked into the issue of air quality, and addressed any concerns people have. Because what you don't want is for the best of intentions to have displacement. So it's a legitimate concern that has been raised. Good councils are addressing them because what nobody wants is, you know, I'm all right, Jack. Uh, but I make this point is many of the residents in side roads for decades have seen their roads used as rat runs. It's a shortcut, right? Mm -hmm. And so the residents are benefiting from their road no longer being a rat run, a shortcut. And cars are now going on main roads. You, you, called, you mentioned the orbital roads. By having the ultra-low emission zone, we're making sure those vehicles that are on the main roads are clean vehicles rather than one churning out poison. How do you feel about the way that the kind of wider kind of conservative conversation universe, shall we call it, you know, that mixture of newspaper and columnist and social media and so forth, is kind of building up this image and almost weaponizing your climate moves as if this guy is the enemy of the motorist and the middle class person who wants to drive their car happily. Look, I think, I think you know, I talk about this in the book a bit, is what you're seeing is the Conservative Party and their allies, including vested interests, trying to use this as part of their culture war because they've seen across the globe and, and, and to be fair and in this country elections being won using things as a culture war and using the politics of division uh, i'm quite clear a good politician will address people's fears rather than play on them and they're playing on people's fears and listen this idea of this being a war on the motorist not true this is a, a war on air pollution this is a war on uh, climate change definitely not an air on uh, a war on the uh, uh, motorist what's happened though you know the short version of the long analysis i could give is because the tories have you know killed the economy interest rates have gone up people's mortgages have gone up they can't claim anymore to be the party of the homeowner they're now trying to claim they're the party of the motorist they're not by the way you know what we've got to do is recognize in a city like london population north of nine million we're basically a roman village that's expanded and expanded and expanded and expanded if every single londoner jumped in their car they'd be gridlocked yeah. plus put aside the air pollution so we've got to invest in public transport invest in safe cycling make pavements wider wider and free up the roads for those that need to be driving the electricians the plumbers our buses um the taxis uh, and so forth and you know there's research being done by the CBI and many others. The cost of improving the air in London will save the NHS more than £5 billion over the next period. The cost of congestion uh, costs businesses in London north of uh, £500 million a year. But also, actually, the average driver the electrician, the plumber, spends 144 hours every year stuck in traffic. That's seven days. So by freeing up our roads and taking people off the roads that don't need to be there, we're allowing people to who need to use the roads to use their roads. And in London, I'm afraid to say, two-thirds of journeys in London, two-thirds of journeys can be walked to cycle in less than 20 minutes. So we are trying to encourage people to walk and cycle, use public transport, but this really isn't an anti-car agenda. This is an anti-air pollution agenda. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
I mentioned that you've kind of become a bit of a hate figure to the to the far right. Um, you, you had Trump calling you a stone cold loser, which is kind of almost a compliment from uh, from him. Can I make this point about Donald Trump about yeah. about, about about stone cold loser? He, he called me a stone cold loser about three years ago, and uh, since him calling me a stone cold loser three years ago, both of us stood for re-election. I'm the only guy that won my re-election. <laughs> You are, though, by by certain measures, in many respects, like the most famous and most conspicuous person of Muslim background in in the country. Do you feel that you're maybe like a lightning rod for prejudices that have nowhere else to land in that, like, there are people out there who who essentially hate Muslims but can feel that they can attack you because they go, oh, it's about it's about his car policies or it's about his uh, it's about his crime policy. It's not I'm, not I'm not a racist. I just don't like policy X. Well, first, listen, listen, in a democracy and in pluralism, it's really important people, you know, uh, are critical of elected politicians. I think it's right and proper for me to be held to account on my policies on crime or on air quality or on transport or, or whatever it may be or, or, or in the economy. I think what's not on is for people to use my ethnicity or my faith as a, a proxy for those other issues. And th- there's been research done on this. You know, every time, you know, Trump attacked me, there was a massive increase in, uh, you know, uh, racist language on social media and, and the internet. And, and by the way, an increase in, in crime, some crimes as well. Uh, but also, you know, we know uh, that if certain people use me and use my name, it's clickbait. And some of these algorithms, the way the model is set up, you, you generate traffic by using certain messages and stuff. And, you know, if you're a, a mediocre journalist or, you know, sort of you're a journalist who's not had m- much good luck and you mentioned me quite a few times, it's, it generates traffic, right? Uh, including radio presenters and, you know, those who write for the mainstream media. And the problem is, is that it creates an environment where people, you know, dislike people of my ethnicity and, and, and my faith. And I say that in the context of, you know the, the the campaign you mentioned in you know 2016 against me from the Tory party where some of these things were stood up you know because of my faith because of my ethnicity because that I used to be a lawyer and stuff bringing in those issues and it led to people who were previously encouraging their kids to put their head by the parapet and become politicians being scared to do so and discouraging their kids to do so so I don't like talking about the hatred and stuff because I don't want to discourage anybody else who wants to be a politician or being in the public eye who's from an ethnic minority or a religious minority, indeed a Muslim, from being nervous to do so because they think, listen, if, if Sadiq Khan's going through this, mm. do I really want to go through this as well? So what the point I make is real human beings aren't like this. You, you know, 2016, you mentioned the biggest vote ever received by a politician in this country ever. 2021, biggest vote received by a sitting mayor. So real people don't feel the way these people on social media express themselves. I was very encouraged by the fact that, you know, Zach Goldsmith's campaign against you was often just flagrantly racist and it didn't, it didn't pay off. It didn't, you know, voters were not pe- having pe- it. Pe- people, and it's not just the London issue, people across our country are, are far better than people give them gener- People give them credit for. They're generous, they understand, you know, what it's all about. I, I've got a phrase which I use, which is in this great city of London, we don't simply tolerate difference, we respect it, we celebrate it, and we embrace it. And, you know, it's really important to say, you know, that, you know, this city rejected those messages of uh, division and uh, hatred and sentiment for, you know, unity and uh, and hope. And by the way, this policy addressing climate change, addressing air pollution is another example of our city leading the way around the world. I mentioned the sewers uh, in, the, uh, you know, in the middle of the 19th century. 
we showed the world how to, in a global city, it was, was you know, a big city, it wasn't a global city then, how to make sure we deal with issues of waste in a sensible way. In the middle of the last century, we showed the world it's possible to remove power stations from the center of the city. And I think we can show the world how you can address the issue of climate change and air pollution in a way that takes people with you. I want to ask you about policing, because it's one of your key responsibilities. The reputation of the Met. I lived in London for 33 years, and I don't think it's been as bad as it as it is now. We've had the killing of Sarah Everard, the over the coronation weekend, the, the kind of indiscriminate arrests. Only yesterday, uh, there was a story about more files linked to the murder of the private investigator, Daniel Morgan, being left in a cupboard when you've been assured that they would be disclosed. It feels like there's something new every day, you know, racist WhatsApp messages, misogyny and racist abuse. You are ultimately responsible for the Met. And I feel like as a Londoner of 33 years standing, I've seen several new starts. Is it time to break it up and reconstitute it with a new force, a clean slate? Not yet. Not yet. Look, look, look. One, of the reasons, one of the reasons why we are discovering more and more about these things is because as a consequence of, of my mayoralty, us shining more of a spotlight on these issues, you know, these systemic cultural issues of institutional racism, institutional sexism, institutional uh, homophobia, and in the words of uh, the panel that looked into Daniel Morgan's horrible murder, institutional corruption. So by shining a spotlight on these things, more of these things are becoming are coming to the fore. And, you know, one of the reasons why I lost confidence in the former commissioner and why she, she resigned is because I didn't think she had a plan to address these issues. I'm afraid it is going to be uncomfortable in the short term. There's going to be some turbulence as more and more of these cases come to the fore. But we're policed by consent in this city. And that means the public needing to have confidence in our police. You mentioned the lack of trust and confidence in our police. Because listen, why would you come forward and report crime if you don't trust the police? Why would you come forward if you're the witness of crime if you don't trust the police? Why would you encourage your children or your nephews and nieces to join the police service if you don't trust the police? So it's in all of our interests for the police to be trusted. But here's the point. Around the country, there are similar problems. But around the country, there isn't the same uh, you know, light being shone on those police forces. But there are cases now coming to the fore around the country of similar concerns and similar challenges. So it, it is an in integral issue of British policing, how the police are policed, the checks and balances in place. And so I'm determined to make sure reform of the police is an integral part of my mayoralty. So what's your ideal vision for the Met then? Because you, you're, well, you talk of, you're standing for a third term, which I'll we'll talk about in a minute. This will be on your plate for a long time. What is your ideal vision for where the Met ought to be? So we need to make it far harder to join a the police service and far easier to get rid of bad officers. We need to have a culture in the police service that isn't simply not racist or not sexist or not homophobic, but is anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic. We need to engender a culture where an officer who sees something bad happening is confident to report it because action will be taken, but also a culture where members of the public have confidence in the police to come forward and report crime. The, commission, the new commissioner has said to me, and he said this to Londoners, he needs at least two years to start bringing about the change we need. I think that's fair. I think you know, these things didn't happen overnight and they won't be solved overnight. And we've got to give him the time and the space and the support to bring about these changes. I've said to the commissioner, my job is to both support him and hold him to account and I'm determined to do both. You are running for an unprecedented third term as London Mayor in 2024. What do you want to accomplish in that time that you haven't been able to do so far? Well, I, I want to finish the job that I've, I've begun. So when I, when I became mayor, in the, in the year before I became mayor, the former mayor began building three, not 3,000, not 
300, but three homes with the social rent. Uh, since I've been here, we've, we've built more than 23,000 council homes. And so we need to only carry on, finish that job. We've completed more homes than any time since the 930s. We've got to fix the housing crisis. I want to make more progress in fixing the area in our city and addressing the issue of uh, climate change. I want to complete the issue of reform of our, our, our policing. I want to make sure we have a proper recovery post the pandemic. This city, for the first time ever, from this September, will have free school meals for every primary school child never happened before only happening because of the investment from city hall but also for the first time in a long time we could have next year a government that's on the side of uh, london and you know in the last seven years i've had to deal with an anti-london conservative government i'm really excited about the opportunity to work with a pro-london labor government to you know fulfill the aspiration uh, hope uh, that many Londoners have. But also you've been able to define yourself against that government. You've been able to have a public row about TfL, which you didn't seek, but you were able to use it to define London's problems and have a go at a government that didn't care. Are you gonna, it's going to be very difficult, uh, different rather, dealing with a Labour government on, you know, when you're on the same team. Yeah, I think, I think what Londoners want from their mayor is not a patsy for the party. They don't want somebody who's in the pocket of the government, whether it's, you know, your, your own party or, or another. They want somebody who's going to be an advocate and champion of the city. So there'll be hopefully many occasions where I agree with the Labour government. But if it's the case that I don't agree with a Labour government, I won't be afraid to say so. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to finish with the most important question of the lot, which is, how does a lad from Tooting end up following the one true path of supporting Liverpool FC. So the, the, so the joke is, that, you know, all good people from South London support Liverpool. If you're from <laughs> Surrey, you support Man United. Uh, but no, but so there, there are actually seven Premier League clubs who are, who are London clubs, my nearest Palace and, and Chelsea down the road. My, my two big brothers both support Chelsea. And on a couple of occasions, they went to the Chelsea and they went to the Shed End and were chased away by the NF. And that was their experience of Chelsea. And so, you know, and that's why... So, And I remember going to Wimbledon, who are my local uh, club, and being racially abused at Plough Lane. Even though I was I went to support Wimbledon, I was a Wimbledon fan. It was Wimbledon fans who racially abused me. And so my experience of football was watching it on TV or listening, you know, you know, match of the day on the ball or your sports night, as you remember, you know, watching it on TV or listening to it on radio. Uh, and that Liverpool team of the 70s and 80s, you know, with, with Doug Leach and Rush, Graeme Souness. And Graeme Souness, to me, epitomised what leadership was about, you know. You know, he tells a great story. I've had the privilege of meeting him where he could, he could escape it with his eyes. Right? Souness <laughs> could escape it with his eyes. Yeah, you know, Ray Clements in goal, Alan, Alan Hansen, you know, this great defence, you know, uh, and it, it went on. Uh, and then we got jo- Johnny Barnes, of course, that great team of of the, the 80s and 90s when we weren't able to play in, in Europe. And, you know, then Stevie G, Carragher, and, of course, now the new generation of Mo Salah uh, and all the rest of the stuff. So, you know, it's th- there's a great saying that somebody once told me, is, look, you can change your, your spouse, you can change your job, you can't change the club that you first fell in love with. And, you know, I, I, you know I've always been a Liverpool fan and uh, long may that continue. You have my vote, Mr. Mayor. On that count alone. <laughs> so, come. thanks so much for talking to me. Lovely talking to you too. Breathe, Tackling the Climate Emergency is out now in hardback, ebook, and audio from Hutchison Heinemann, price £16.99. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this edition. Listeners, if you did, then you can help the war against information pollution by supporting wholesome sources of news and comment. Back the bunker on Patreon and help us keep making podcasts like this. Just search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The 
Bunker Daily was written and presented by Andrew Harrison and was recorded at Spiritland Studios. Audio production was by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.